Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I am joined today by Steph Watts, executive producer and development executive, specializing in crime and justice programming and creating compelling fiction and nonfiction content across all platforms. Now, Steph launched his career at Court TV, producing live and taped national trial coverage, managing all aspects of media logistics, overseeing editorial accuracy, and producing larger format documentaries. He currently appears in a six-part documentary on the Discovery Plus channel, and he co-hosts a new investigative crime podcast called Case by Case. Steph Watts, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you. That was that introduction was motivational. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Well, so you much, are. Corey. Thank you, you are very busy, sir. Yes, indeed. Uh, thanks. Well, you're very in, well. In this new world order we exist in, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, well, look, you were always busy even before that happened, clearly. But I do want to know, though, when it comes to that line of work, first and foremost, I'm really curious about, you know, there is a distinction between being a TV journalist and then being a TV journalist working in the the crime segment of the of the business. So what inspired you to work in that particular area of TV journalism? Well, when I, you know, you know, I'm originally from Canada. When I first moved here a hundred years ago, my very first job was interning at the Village Voice. And I had a chance to do some really investigative stuff with great uh, journalists like, um, yeah, Frank Owens comes to mind. And Frank and I had done a whole investigative into like New York nightclubs and drug use. And Mm. it was just really fascinating for me to like, you know, be in these kind of darker worlds and asking questions. And then from there, actually, my first real job was with Brill's content magazine, which was Steve Brill, who at the time had actually started Core TV. And it was a, a really interesting magazine, which eventually went online, really all about sort of inside the media. It was a little bit inside baseball, a little bit ahead of its time. But when the magazine folded, I had an opportunity to go over to Core TV. And basically, I remember Bonnie Dry hired me, this woman. She was like exasperated. <laughs> I like, needed somebody to start right away. She's like, can you start tomorrow? Wow. Like literally like one of those movie scenes. And I was like, can I start tomorrow? <laughs> sure. You know, <laughs> so I started in documentaries and just really, you know, being personable and asking the right questions. And I think intuitively, when you wonder about something or something doesn't feel right, that's really at, at the core of kind of what I do, mm. uh, essentially, you know, I've had, right. I had the luxury of building a reputation and establishing myself with, you know, law enforcement and judges and courts and mm. networks all across the country. It's been a really great and interesting and learning journey. Well, two things come to mind when you tell me that story. One is it makes perfect sense why, since you did that original work at the Village Voice with that whole like the the club scene and the, the drugs, it makes perfect sense why you would later go on to do that piece on uh, Michael Alec right. and the party monster thing. Yeah. That was part of my series for uh, ID on sort of inside cults and inside 
darker worlds or worlds we didn't know that much about. And I felt like as I, you know, get hired to do these projects and pitched, I was like, that's an interesting, you know, cult club world. And yeah, I had the opportunity. I think, you know, I did one of the last interviews with Michael, because as you know, he died uh, this year, Mm -hmm. Christmas, you know, it's, and that's another whole topic, but like for somebody to, still have the opportunity to get on with their life and come out and destroy their life, you know, the same way that they, you know, close to how they destroyed the person who they murdered, Mm. you know, they were high on drugs and, you know, admittedly, and for him to come out and continue that behavior, it's just, what did he learn in there? What a waste of money. What a waste of time. It was sad, but um, yeah, that was called deadly devotions. That series, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, that was an interesting fit, but thank you for that. Connection. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes. And, and, and for me too, I was a young teenager hanging out in New York City during the time when that actually happened. Or maybe I was like in my late teens, early 20s. And so I can remember actually still, and I think I told you this once before, I can remember actually seeing the flyers on phone booths of, have you seen Angel? Like I was there when that happened. So, you know, to be in New York City when something that crazy happened. Um, and for those of you who don't know, just Google Michael Alec and you'll get the story. But you well, started- there was a movie Cor- about it, right? Oh, right. It was a movie. Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin played Party, Party Monster. Monster. Right. right. And then I did the actual documentary, which you watched, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, it was interesting. You know, it was one of my- one of my jailhouse interviews was with him. Yeah, and wow. Angel's it was brother. It was a really emotional story. Yeah, they I mean, all they all are, but that one, you know, kind of that kind of hits you a bit bit harder. That one. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, with Court TV, having that being that you started there, it makes me think in a way because that was like I think when I first remember Court TV, that's going back to like 2004, maybe 2003, mm-hmm. a long yeah. while back, and there were not many shows like that really. So court TV to me seems like it was one that sparked this genre. Now there's such an overabundance on cable of all those sorts of, you know, ID mm-hmm. investigative and forensic. Do you feel in a way that show was a catalyst for those other programs? Yeah, I believe so. I think from my personal experiences, I was forced to quickly learn about the judicial system in this mm-hmm. country Yeah, and its strengths and its weaknesses. You know, we, we were really schooled on editorial accuracy. We were in courts every day covering trials. There was really no margin for error, but we were also airing the trials live or taped. Mm. So, you know, the, the stories played out themselves, but what I really started to notice early on, Corey, was that there was a very, it was a big, what's the word, despairing and, and the coverage of, of white, people versus black people and the portrayal of people of color within the judicial system. I remember a lot of times we'd wait if it's a big court case, like, you know, I don't know, like Casey Anthony or uh, Mm -hmm. something we were waiting for. The judge still had other matters of business prior to those. And I would remember that the inmates would come in chained dressed in orange. And I was always where like 95% of those people are black. Mm. Why, and, and, you know, a lot of them were not violent offenders. They were drug offenses, you know, robberies. And, and it always struck me as, you know, they would come in and it reminded me of slavery. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. And, yeah. and it's it, those images always stuck with me. And I'm like, why are there so many people of color? You know, this is early on. Okay, just, you know, I know people can say, well, how did you not know that? I'm talking, this is 20 years ago. And also you, you were know, not from, from here. Canada. Right, you're not from this country. Right, I'm from Canada. So my lens on racism and my lens on on that whole is different, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully. But um, yeah, yeah. 
so that that always stuck with me. So even early on, I remember that it was important for us to tell stories of color. And I remember one of the first ones I did was Ray Carruth, and it was a horrific story. Um, He paid for the Carolina Panthers and hired a hitman to kill his girlfriend. It was a terrible story, but it was one of the first ones that we told where everybody was equal in the story. You know, it wasn't like, you know, stranger danger, black guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. the nation saw it with OJ, but OJ was famous. Yeah, so yeah. it was a different, you know, celebrities get treated differently. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know what I found fascinating about the OJ trial, and uh, since you brought that up and disturbing at the same time, was because there was a sense in the African American community that there was always two justice systems where uh, white people, especially affluent white people, were more likely to get away with crimes and even heinous crimes. There was a sense within the black community as well that OJ, I think for the most part, at some point we all were like, yeah, he probably did this, right? But there was also still cheering and victory, a sense of victory when he was acquitted because it was almost like this weird game of like playing chess was like, you know, wow, well, we finally got one that didn't, it was a very strange sort of uh, way to watch that trial unfold and cheer for someone who thought was probably guilty. I did. I covered the OJ civil case, but for that trial, I was still in Canada. And I remember that moment. It was pivotal for me because I remember I was in a mall and I was like, why are people cheering? You know, two people are dead. Right, right. Many people believe that this person, regardless of the color of his skin, committed this crime. And yet there's cheers and bars like it's a sporting event. Mm. And it just didn't make sense to me. And that really yeah. triggered for me. And that was a, a moment for me that like, I, I really want to you know, explore how this happened. And, and, and that, that, was a, that was a really turning point for me. I remember that. It's kind of yeah. like, I don't remember a lot of things in my life, like 9-11, where you mm-hmm. were like O.J. Simpson. It was one of right. those things like, for me personally, I just, I remember where I was. I remember that moment. I remember how disturbing and upsetting it was to see people react that way. Yeah, like the jury really ruled however they ruled. And I respect that, but you know, still they, that was, that was um, the decline of uh, American culture at that moment. It was really, it, yeah, I, I was working in a restaurant at the time. So I remember like that moment, everyone was like waiting and watching whatever they could to see it. And then I, I heard the entire mall erupt and like, you know, various stores and restaurants. And yeah, it was very strange. But, you know, the bigger point of the story, though, that I love that you're sharing, especially with this being a leadership podcast, is that you're using your platform to equal out some of that disparity in those Mm -hmm. stories that are being told, you know, and you've shared that, you know, for example, while the media is covering the story of like a missing one missing white girl, there's like 20 to 30 black women who you've never heard of or native American or Hispanic who are also missing and they're not in the media. Why do you think, well, I wouldn't say why, but I mean, because it's a loaded question, but I mean, you know, on the surface, is it, is it just, is it racism or like, what would you call it that makes that happen? It's it's a couple of things. I mean, I have a theory. I call it pretty missing white girl syndrome. And I think it's, it's what, the world suffers from at some point the media suffers from at some point there a narrative became came to the surface within the meet in the meetings of that i would be in and and it was like essentially they would say white people aren't interested in, in the stories of people of color mm. and if you if you hear that enough you buy into it but i always questioned it i was always like 
wait, who said that? Where's the statistics? Show me the the spreadsheets on this false <laughs> narrative that was created. And yeah. finally, you know, being a little bit of a, a badass, I guess, an outsider, like I took a stand against it because I was like, wait, I'm a storyteller and there's a whole plethora of interesting and compelling stories that have dramatically affected people. And regardless of the fact that their skin color is different, I don't see why we can't tell these stories. And I, I got to the point in the networks where I was, I would say to them, you know, they'd say things to me like, you know, I'd pitch a story and they'd say to me, you know, Steph, that's, this story is just too sad upon sad for us. And I'd be like, you do crime. We just did Ted Bundy. He murdered a million people. Like, we just, like, how is this story ever sadder? Let's take sad and replace it with black upon black and have a real mm. conversation. Yeah. I took it a step further. And I said in an article that I wrote that the stories of white killers, women killers, it's Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, you know, uh, Eileen Warner. The list yeah. goes on and on. Took precedent over victims of color. That was more important to tell these sensational stories. That's changed now, though. That, you know, I think with, you know, there was a quick turnaround, I think, with, you know, you know Breonna Taylor and George yeah. Floyd and all these cases, the systemic racism and historic racism within the media and within the justice system's been put on trial. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's being questioned. And I think people are, are, be, are, are beginning to make an, a, an effort. And I mean, I hate to be the one to be like, I told you also, but yeah. you know, there's been, there's compelling stories. And, and for me, like one of the big pivotal moments was a story that we did for a &E on Rodney Reed. And a lot of people might know that recently because Kim Kardashian jumped on board, which I respect her to help save Rodney from execution. But prior to that, years ago, I did a story for A&E when he was a black man. He's on death row for crime. He did not commit a murder of Stacey Stites. Stacey was murdered probably by her white police officer boyfriend. You know, they said, well, we tried him. He was convicted. He's sentenced to death. I, I was down in the town Bastrop, Texas, 50 miles outside of Austin and a hundred years back in time, I call it, mm. where the N-word is prevalent there. And I finally had to say to them, because you guys stop talking like that, or I will report that you, you speak like that in rooms full of people who look like me. But further to more, we, you know, within a week, Corey, of being there, I found, you know, witnesses who was like, oh, yeah, Rodney would come in here all the time to see Stacey at work. But when her boyfriend would come in, she'd run hide in the back. They said they couldn't find witnesses. How am I, just as young budding journalist, finding witnesses in a small town? And finally, we presented the story on Annie, and they stayed his execution because it was so glaringly mm. embarrassing for them that they said that they couldn't, that he was stranger danger and didn't. They their whole case, Corey, was they that he didn't even know Stacy. I went to his bail bonds lady, this old German white woman, who he would go and you know pay money to because he had done minor crimes, nothing major, and he she would tell me, oh yeah, Stacy came with him all the time. Mm, it's, wow! It's like so. My point is. Because they didn't want to do the work because it was easier to pin a crime on and close a case and put it on somebody of color. Yeah. And that's still prevalent to this day. That's still happening. But we've got we've got prosecutors offices all across the country now that are forming task forces that are reexamining every single case in their office for these exact examples that I give you of, of uh, mistakes that were happening. So I commend all the prosecutors offices across the country that are doing that these wow. task force that they, they've created. Yeah, well, I commend you, sir, because wow. that is powerful as well. I mean, you know, I, that's why I asked early on, like, you know, there's TV journalism, and then there's like, you know, potentially what, what you just shared is that some work you produced actually helped 
change the minds mm-hmm. of people who are in charge of the execution of someone mm-hmm. and had them go back and reevaluate because they could no longer deny it because that's how good the investigative reporting was. And so for right. I, I want to make sure that anyone who's listening who really is thinking about a career in investigative reporting, that's a bigger picture for you to think about, like really making mm-hmm. a difference, right? Not just going out because it's a job, mm-hmm. but there's a chance to change lives. So that brings me to actually another question too, which is mm-hmm. when you decide to do a project or feature a story, is it something that you do because it's based on pop culture, pop, you know, the, the, it's, it's captivating the global audience. So, you know, it'll be, you know, good for ratings and do a good piece, or is it something that it sparks some sort of emotive response in you? And you're like, you know, I gotta get in there and figure out what happened. Something's not right. Which one, or are they both? It's it? that's a very good question, Mr. Corey. A very good <laughs> I think, you, I think to answer that question in the past, it's been, doing the pop culture stories. So, you know, for example, when I was with a particular production company, when I did my series, American Murder Mysteries, I did Casey Anthony. Fair. You know, I did the sit down with George and Cindy. Mm. It was a big deal. At the same time for the series, then we did, you know, Scott Peterson and Drew Peterson. Mm. Then, you know, that aired on, on ID, which is then Oxygen wanted me to do Scott Peterson and Drew Peterson for them. Okay, you know, I got bills to pay. These are stories are still compelling. I'm, I'm mostly involved in these stories. Then, you know, Annie wants to do Casey Anthony's parents speak. So finally, it gets to the point where I'm like, we keep telling these same stories. Yet over here, I have a plethora of compelling stories that happen to be of people of color. And I want to tell these stories. So to answer your question, yes, I was, I think, previously motivated by that. And I ever think since the pandemic hit and I locked down, you know, and we all had the sort of our, our moments of, of clarity or, or what, what are we doing with our yeah, lives? Yeah, right. Yeah. I spent a lot of that time on the phones with people like Nico Jenkins, who's a TikTok sensation right now, because they say, if you look in his eyes, you die. Nico is a young man at 17 years old, a young man of color, severely mentally ill. There's no question about that. He was incarcerated for 20 years for carjackings, three carjackings, Mm. never got treated for his mental illness, did five years in solitary confinement leading up to his release. He wrote letters to everybody saying, please don't release me. I'm going to kill people. Within 10 days of being released, went on a killing spree and murdered four people and then was able to defend himself in a death penalty trial while he's mentally ill. He now sits on death row. And I'm like, here's a failure of the system. And, you know, the victim's families tried to sue. Nico tried to sue the facility. He left four people shot and still alive that the police never connected the case because they were victims of color. He writes a letter to the newspaper saying, by the way, I shot those people too. I, I screwed up that day and missed, you know, they're alive. And, you know, they throw all the lawsuits out. And then I, this is in Omaha, Nebraska, by the way, for anybody who cares, I find this document where all these senators and and majority Republicans, and no offense to my Republican friends, but who were meeting behind doors with paperwork that said, let's discuss reform on the release of Nico Jenkins. But you're over here telling these people, well, your lawsuits are frivolous. We had nothing to do with it. So these are the kind of stories that I want to tell. And I'm currently involved in telling that one. When, you know, and, I, and I have to put my foot down and be like, I don't want to do Casey Anthony anymore. You know, yes, that was an injustice. Yes, she killed her daughter. And then she got off. I don't want to really like, let's move the conversation forward and start telling compelling stories of injustice. Let's be transparent about our mistakes within the judicial system. And then we can fix it. 
it. But we can't fix it if we don't talk about it. Stop sweeping it under the rug. And within that arena, there's compelling stories. So people are starting to come around to that. And and, um, so it's making my work more interesting. That reminds me of a conversation I just had with an amazing, remarkable woman who I'm sure you've heard of, um, Donna Hilton. Mm-hmm. And Donna Hilton, of course, went to prison for 27 years and is now one of the most amazing women's rights advocates and prison reform advocates in the country and just completely transformed her life because of the experience. But one of the things that she discusses is the fact that she had come from a long history of trauma beginning as a child. And many women in prison have had such a similar story of abuse and it led them down a path that you know, through some criminal activity got them in trouble. But you just said something very, very similar to what she said, which is that society is failing people before something happens, right? So we have to care more before they become criminals and identify things that we need to help them with before they harm themselves or others. And I think that is why your work is so important because it sheds light on that too, right? Thank you. One thing that I'm trying to do as a white American, because I can never separate myself from the problem, is I think that white people need to understand our role, our major role in the trauma of the black community. Once we start to understand our responsibility for the trauma that the black community suffers and start to have conversations about the trauma, then we can begin to figure out how to heal, begin to figure out how to heal, you know? And because I don't think that the black community can heal alone if the white community isn't willing to accept the responsibility and the culpability of the historic and systemic racism that we created. And I say we, because again, I can't separate myself from the problem. You know, me telling people, oh, I grew up in Canada, it's different for me. That doesn't, that narrative is is not helpful to the overall conversation. My role And my, you know, as I grow is to say, what stories can I tell through my genre? Because that's all I know. How can I make a difference? I think for one example, I'm flying to Chicago next week to do the compelling story of the murder of Yolanda Holmes. And I knew the investigate. I know the investigating officers very well. Full disclosure, Michelle is my podcast partner now because I admire her work. She worked tirelessly tirelessly to solve Yolanda's murder. It took her a year. When the backlash was, you know, the, the officers didn't care about the murder of their family member. It's not true. They just couldn't talk about the work that they were doing. I remember Michelle would call me up at night and be like, Steph, the, I was looking at these crime scene photos. She had the same shoes as me. She had the same knife holder. She bought this scarf hanging on the door at Target. I know she bought it there because I have the same one. I'm like, okay, so how do I take those moments and tell those stories and show people that there is police officers that Mm. care. I know there's bad police officers and we see it and it's terrible, Yeah, but there's a million good things that happen that don't get talked about as well, Corey. Oh, I love that. I love that. You know, I mean, and I'm all about highlighting the terrible police officers. Drew Peterson's a horrible human being, a horrible police officer, or, or the things that happen to George Floyd or any of these large cases. Let's shine a spotlight on that to see how we can move the conversation forward and begin to heal and fix. So that, that's really, kind of where I'm at. I mean, I want to tell compelling stories, mm-hmm. you know, and and there's a pool of untold compelling stories that I, I feel like a responsibility to tell. 
Steph Watts, thank you so much for your time today. And we really appreciate all the words of wisdom here you share with us on Motivational Mondays. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.